This isn't actually part of episode 113, and I'm recording it on my laptop mic, so sorry for the sound. We were really on the fence about whether to release this episode today, largely because 113 covers the incredibly violent start of the incredibly violent Wolverine ongoing series. We ultimately decided to go ahead and release it with this added introduction, both because there's value and routine in the face of tragedy, and because there are times when continuing to exist visibly and publicly is itself an act of defiance. Love and solidarity to everyone who's grieving right now, and especially to our Florida friends and family, and to fellow members of the queer community. To our listeners, the following episode involves some pretty in-depth discussions of fictional violence, including gun violence. If you don't want to listen to that right now, that is absolutely okay. If you want to listen to it later, it'll still be here. And if you never want to listen to it at all, that's okay too, and we won't love you any less. Hey Jay, what's the Muramasa's deal? Uh, you know, magic swords loosely based off folklore around an ill-tempered 15th century swordsmith. The usual. Wait, swords? Like plural? Well, sure. One accursed sword isn't going to pay the rent, man. How many are there? Marvel? Just the two that I know of. What's the difference? Well, there's the Black Blade and there's Wolverine's sword. Didn't the Black Blade possess Wolverine? Yeah, we just read that. And then he got another one? Yeah. Huh. Look, it's Wolverine. Good decision-making has never really been his strong suit. A uh, point. So does Wolverine's possess people, too? Not that I know of. His jerk kid ran around with a shard of it for a while, and he seemed to be okay, well, you know, by his standards. How'd he get his hands on it in the first place? Dokken? Oh, he took it off Cyclops. Cyclops? How'd he get it? Wolverine gave it to him as a sort of Xavier Protocol-style failsafe, since for a while it was theoretically the only thing that could actually kill him. Him being Wolverine, not Cyclops. Because it's made of adamantium? Because it includes a piece of Wolverine's soul. WHAT?! I'm J. Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here... To explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 113 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to us finally addressing the existence of the Wolverine ongoing series after uh, drowning in Inferno for a very long time. Yeah, Inferno is over now. It's true, yeah. Everyone can resume some status quo or another, including I... Wolverine, who's hanging out in a small Southeast Asian country. Oh, wait, wait. Let me go back a bit. So Inferno's over. Uh, as far as I know. It's not happening anymore. I don't think Manhattan is possessed anymore, and I don't think we have to talk about possessed Manhattan. There's, there's stuff that comes after it. It's not comics forever? I, I, I think so. I mean, there's some demonic stuff sort of in this arc we're covering this time, but... God, I, I, I can't even imagine anymore what comes after Inferno. Wolverine. Damn it. Well, okay, so there's been a Wolverine ongoing that actually started before some of the Inferno stuff we were talking about. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, and it's kind of a weird series, because it's Wolverine doing his own thing, like, at the same time that he's on the X-Men, which, at this point in history, was kind of, I'm not going to say unprecedented, but certainly less common. Well, it starts and carries on the grand tradition of Wolverine being in about ten places at a time. Although I do really appreciate that, at least for the first few issues of the series, Chris Claremont is very careful to make it sort of make sense. Apparently, it just involves Wolverine getting a lot of frequent flyer miles going between the States and Madripoor like every weekend. But, you know, he's got some money. I'm sure it's fine. 
Do you mean Australia and Madripoor? Uh, oh, right. I totally do. Or yeah, maybe Gateway just teleports him. I assume him. Gateway is just teleporting him. That This is basically what's, what he's doing on his off days. Because you get the impression that the X-Men have a lot of downtime in the Outback. Does he get frequent Gateway miles? Is that a thing? I, I, I don't know. Hmm. That sounds sort of tawdry. Frequent Gateway miles. That's like a really confusing nickname for me. It would be great. That's not exactly a nickname. I... Well, anyway, epithet, maybe epithet, perhaps. So the Wolverine series is kind of a weird series. This is, of course, the first solo character ongoing spinoff. We've had many series before, but this is the first ongoing. And Chris Claremont was actually opposed to it from the start. Right. There's a great quote from him. If I'd had my way, there would have been no ongoing series at all, but instead an annual miniseries with a defined beginning, middle and end. The problem with an ongoing title is that you must provide perpetual grist for the mill. With a solo character, it's only a matter of time before the temptation becomes irresistible to strip mine those aspects of his history and character which make him so interesting and mysterious in the first place. And yeah, Claremont is totally right here, and that's something that absolutely does happen over time. And that did happen with Wolverine, and God, I am so soundly with Claremont on this, especially reading the first few arcs of Wolverine, because what it feels like to me is a pulp noir series. It feels like the kind of serial where you should just be able to pick up one story anywhere in the series, vaguely get what's going on from context, and then have it end and put it back down. Like, this should be, you know, Travis McGee, Bernie Rodenbar, Logan in Madripoor yeah. doing stuff. No, I'll, I'll totally buy that. And the series does, in a sense, become that, because Chris Claremont did start off writing the series, rumor has it, because he figured if he didn't do it, somebody else would, and he wanted to make sure it got done right which is a very Chris Claremont thing to do. I mean, that's um, basically the story of X-Men as a line, isn't it? Uh, as far as all the spinoffs, at least. Yeah, totally. I feel like he's probably a member of the fellowship of the kids who did the whole group project by themselves. <laughs> yeah, I we, think so. We recognize our own. He finally met someone in Louise Simonson he was willing to trust and things got better. And so the series as it goes, you know, you'll see things like Claremont's run, which is a few contiguous arcs that all lead into one another. But a lot of the time, you'll just see like a one-off here or there or a two-off. And so a lot of the series is just little stories that may be kind of cool, but don't really tie into anything at all. Or larger continuity. So we've talked a lot about how we're going to cover this, at least between the two of us. We haven't really brought it up on the podcast because we've been trying to figure it out. And the conclusion we came to is that it's going to vary. You know, we've mentioned to an extent that there are a number of factors that influence what we cover and how we cover it. And one of those is relative centrality to the X-Men as a team. And one of them is, you know, relative integration with other continuity. And one of them is how much we care and yeah. what we specifically want to talk about. And so I think Wolverine's solo ongoing is going to be one of the places where the latter factor comes into play most prominently, where there are going to be episodes or whole arcs that we basically skim or just mention. So Wolverine went here and did some stuff and you can read that if you want to. But here's the arc that we're really invested in. The pace at which we cover it is also going to vary. So, for example, I think this episode we're covering, like, basically 13 issues worth of content just fairly quickly. Depending on how you count, it could be anywhere between nine issues and 20 issues. We'll get back to that in a minute. But first, I guess, let's talk about the narrative, you know, and publishing underpinnings of this. This is the second Wolverine series. The first was a miniseries. It was not an ongoing. And that was by Claremont and Frank Miller in 1982. And we, of course, covered that in a prior episode, which you should go check out. Yeah, I'll link to that in the Visual Companion. Now, to keep this ongoing separate from X-Men so that it didn't become too redundant, Chris Claremont decided to set it in a place called Madripoor that we'd seen a couple times before. He also had Wolverine largely out of uniform and not going by Wolverine. Instead, he had this alter ego named Patch, who wears all black and only pops his claws when he can be subtle about it and or kill the people who see them. Because the X-Men, of course, are still supposed to be dead at this point, and he doesn't want to blow their cover. And who has the least plausible disguise ever. Like, I'm going to keep harping on this 
every time. But man, I have no idea how he actually manages to stay incognito. Yeah, Clark Kent ain't got nothing on Patch. Seriously. So let's talk about Madripoor a little bit and what it is. Okay, so Madripoor first appeared in New Mutants number 32. That was the arc where Karma was possessed by the Shadow King and was sort of a crime lord herself. And the New Mutants were chasing her. They ended up in Cairo. The place itself is sort of similar to Singapore in that it's an island port nation around that part of the world with one big city that sort of defines it, also called Madripoor. But it's like Singapore, if instead of a real country, Singapore were built entirely out of pulp and noir genre conventions and really uncomfortable Orientalism. I feel okay about all of that except for the last part. The last part is pretty pervasive and significant. As far as the city itself, though, so at one point Cypher in New Mutants calls it both Earth's Maz Isley and a modern-day Tortuga, and that's a pretty good way of looking at it. You know, wretched hive of scum and villain pirates, that sort of thing. Now, something I found out in doing my research here is that according to an Avengers World arc from the somewhat recent past, Madripoor is actually floating on the head of a sleeping dragon who is under the sea in that part of the world. Man, I should have used that for the cold open. You know, there are so many options. So yeah, most recently we saw Madripoor, as far as I know, actually this may have been before the Avengers World thing, not sure. But regardless, the most recent time we saw it in X-Men was when Mystique was running the show and was using mutant growth hormone and the drug trade around that to turn it into like this lawless mutant utopia thing. Didn't she straight up buy it off Viper, like with cash? That sounds about right. Yeah. And then she was harvesting mutant DNA from Dazzler while she was impersonating her in S.H.I.E.L.D. It was a mess. Mystique's not a nice person. God, I love her. Oh, yeah, me too. Now, when I first read the Wolverine ongoing, you know, I got it in my big stack of comics from my father way back in the day. Which I then inherited. I was a little confused because it references all these things that happened previously that I had never read about. And see, you didn't grow up reading detective novels, which I did. And so I was used to, you know, you pick up whatever one you can find. And even the first one starts sort of with the assumption that this person's been doing their thing for a while with bits and hints of backstory. And you just pick things up as you go along and you figure out what's relevant. So this, for me, again, felt like just picking up a Travis McGee book or whatever. Like, it made sense to me to just sort of be dropped into that world. Although in this case, there actually was a backstory because I was not, as a child, aware of Marvel Comics Presents, which is a sort of anthology title that every arc would feature, you know, a story featuring one of the X-Men or later on just Wolverine all the time. But the first 10 issues of that were a story called Save the Tiger, written by Chris Claremont, drawn by John Buscema. That was basically the introduction to the Wolverine ongoing. It's where Wolverine goes to Madripoor, meets a lot of the major characters, that sort of thing. It's called Save the Tiger? Yeah, yeah. Was there at any point in this series, either the Marvel Comics Presents stuff or later in Wolverine, a story titled The Lady or the Tiger? Because I feel like that's such an obvious place for Claremont to go based on what he usually does, but I didn't catch one, at least in this in the first few arcs. I mean, I don't know, but wouldn't it be the lady is the tiger since this is all about tiger tiger? Also possible. And then you can sing to the tune of that's why the lady is a tramp, except it can be about like crime and murder and that that's sort of thing. That's why the lady is a tiger? That doesn't really stand She gets too well. hungry for dinner at eight. She loves the theater, but always kills everyone. So they ask her to leave <laughs> politely, but she runs the island. That That sounds like a good song. Someone should sing that song. She'd never bother with people she'd hate. <laughs> I mean, it, it does actually a lot of the original lyrics line up. Okay, well, there you have Hates it. Hates California? Do tigers hate California? I don't know. I mean, probably. It would follow. <laughs> so, yes, in this story, this is where we first see Wolverine in Madripoor and his patch identity. It's also where we meet this dude named O'Donnell, who runs a place called the Princess Bar. Now, as near as I can tell, O'Donnell and the Princess Bar are respectively Rick and, like, uh, the bar in Casablanca. Blonde Rick. Uh, Yes, Blondrick. The parallels certainly aren't exact, but I mean, the parallel to Casablanca, at least, is already called out at least once in the series, so I'll totally buy that. So So on deliberate Casablanca references, where would you rate this relative to Overdrawn at the Memory Bank? Or Barb Wire, for that matter. I would would rate it higher than both, which is not perhaps saying How would you rate those two relative to each other? Oh, I can't ask you that, can I? Because Barb Wire 
That's a work conflict. It is. Although I will say that Raul Julia in Overdrawn at the Memory Bank, that is something to see right there. That is a generously neutral descriptor. It's his first movie. He's great in it. He's adorable. He is. He's tiny, adorable Raul Julia. And then he grew up to become M. Bison. (laughs) As we all hope to. So currently the political situation in Madripoor is that there's a crime lord named Roche who's, you know, ruling everything with his iron Roshi fist, and also with the help of some henchmen, Razor Fist, who has a truly awful costume. We're going to put that up in the uh, the visual companion to this episode. His hands are just big fucking blades, aren't they? They are. And in fact, at one point, Logan wonders how he eats or gets dressed. That uh, is a reasonable question. I assume he has other prostheses. Just little attachments? Yeah. Yeah, that's Or like reasonable. maybe he has like protective sheaths for them. He just uses Waldos like scientists use, you know, those little hands that go through the wall to mess with toxic stuff. Maybe he has helper monkeys. Maybe he has helper monkeys. A trained capuchin. That would be great. We need a razor fist ongoing that can address these questions and more. Uh, Marvel, get on it. And uh, yes, so Roche also has a couple of other henchmen who aren't nearly as interesting named the Inquisitor and Sapphire Styx. They're basically iffy Marvel Comics Presents villains, like the kind that are very seldom referenced again because they're just kind of meh. Sapphire Styx sounds like an evil My Little Pony. It really does. Or perhaps some kind of uh, candy you could buy at like a roller skating rink. It could be both. I'm going to have some sapphire sticks and then I'm going to be super hyper for a long time. And so they basically capture Wolverine while he's, you know, aiding sometimes and having his ass kicked sometimes by a woman named Tiger Tiger. Now, you may remember Tiger Tiger. She was the daughter of a banking family in that one X-Men story where the X-Men met the Reavers at a bank that they knocked over. Oh, she was the one who got her brain sucked out by Pretty Boy. Yeah, Pretty Boy of the Reavers. Who I cannot stop picturing as a giant parakeet anytime he is not actually on page. I mean, I think that's a reasonable retcon. I think if Pretty Boy ever shows up again, I'm sure he's dead. But if he comes back, budgie. Make him a goddamn budgie. Dude, the Reavers have died and come back so many times. Like, that's not going to stop them. I think Wolverine just killed them again in Old Man Logan, didn't he? He did, yeah. Basically, they were trying to rewrite her into one of them, into an evil, evil person. And Pretty Boy, the budgie, was interrupted halfway through this process. And so she ended up kind of amoral and also really good at martial arts, but not totally evil. And that's the morally gray tiger tiger that we see who's now in Madripoor. So he literally just rewrote her into a cool supervillain. I mean, basically, yeah. That's really handy when you you have a character who can just rewrite uh, existing characters into the ones you want to write. Into plot relevant figures. That's pretty cool. I I mean, that's that's very Siege Perilous. It kind of is. Yeah, same era, too. And in fact, she almost goes through the Siege Perilous before begging to not lose all of her memories because the Siege Perilous, of course, erases your entire history. We'll be talking a lot more about that in upcoming episodes. Regardless, the reason Tiger Tiger's in Madripoor is because she found out that the Reavers hit her family's bank and killed, like, her entire family because they were hired by Roche, this crime lord. Like, there was businessy reasons he wanted to wipe out this bank, so she's here to take him out and become the new crime lord. So, there's a thing about Tiger Tiger that really bugs me. Oh, okay. And it's such a small thing, but it just, it never stops. So she spells them differently. Yeah, it's like T-Y-G-E-R, T-I-G-E-R, like one after the other. Why would you do that? To confuse your enemies so that if they fuck it up, you have an excuse to kill them. Do you think like if her hench people like get it wrong when they're, I, I don't know, when they're writing the return address on things or like labeling her shirts or whatever. Her administrative henchmen. Her administrative henchmen, she just murders them. I mean, that seems entirely reasonable. It's kind of like Oren Ishii when she kills that person for mentioning her heritage and Kill Bill. Yeah, but that's mentioning her heritage accurately. I mean, derisively, which is absolutely inappropriate. But I'm talking about just straight up clerical errors. I don't know. Tiger Tiger doesn't seem quite that petty. Yeah, she's not petty in general, actually. She gets set up, I think, kind of as an honorable antagonist for the most part. She's a bad guy. She's a criminal, but she's like the cool criminal who you team up with sometimes. (laughs) Yup. And that's like Wolverine. Kind of. Yeah. Well, and that's what happens here because Wolverine's like, hey, you know, I can't support you if you're just going to try to become a different crime lord. And she basically says, all right, well, check this out. I'm not going to deal with drugs and I'm not going to deal with slaves because I'm against those things. I'm just going to do the kinds of crimes that are like less awful. 
So you can either support me or somebody worse is going to take over. Take your pick, dude. Like what? Like what? What? What are her less awful crimes? Like copyright infringement? Vandalism? I'm going to assume so. Possibly plagiarism? That's not victimless. Oh, well, that's true. Maybe she doesn't do that. She doesn't deal with drug running, slavery, or plagiarism because she's ethical. Weapon smuggling? Fair game. Yeah, that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That just gives the weapons a chance to see the world, you know, some sightseeing for guns. I mean, to be fair, considering that there is a weapon program with a number of characters codenamed Weapon who are sentient and probably would like to sightsee a bit, there's that. So she just, like, puts Phantom X into a little suitcase with holes poked in the side so he can breathe while he's on the flight? That is weirdly easy to picture. It kind of is, yeah. Like, in one of those cardboard pet carriers? Yeah, and then there's just an outrageous French accent coming from inside instead of yapping. Maybe yapping also. Maybe yapping with a French accent. He's a versatile guy. Anyway, so that's basically what this Marvel Comics Presents story sets up. Wolverine as Patch in Madripoor, the princess bar run by this dude named O'Donnell, who's Wolverine's buddy, and Tiger Tiger as this new up-and-coming crime lord in Madripoor. So, I want to talk a little bit about this series, because I give Wolverine a lot of shit. Yes, you do. And I think a lot of it is deserved. And I love, I love, I love early Wolverine ongoing. Yeah, Claremont's run is so much fun. I agree with him that it should be a series of miniseries, but barring that... I think this is how you do a solo title, and this is something you're going to see reflected in very different ways in, for example, the Hawkeye solo series by Matt Fraction and David Aja years and years and years later, in that you tell a story in a genre that you don't normally work in in a superhero comic. You tell a story that's fundamentally a Wolverine story and is the kind of story you can only tell when Wolverine's off doing his own thing. Well, yeah, and Claremont straight up says, how did he describe it? As uh, high adventure rather than super heroics, sort of a combination of Conan meets Terry and the Pirates. And I think that's basically it. Yeah, yeah, no, that is an incredibly accurate descriptor. Now, later on, the Wolverine series, of course, will go in a number of different directions genre-wise. And I think probably most of it is more the Wolverine we've seen in X-Men. But this stuff, good stuff. So do you want to just dive into the Black Blade arc? I do. So we've got John Bashema on pencils. Yeah, for I believe this entire run. Yeah, we're going to have Bill Sienkiewicz coming in and doing finishes some. Oh, man. On and off a little bit. I and think I think he, he does he at does least on, one pinup as well. Yeah, he a, a number of people do pinups. There are occasional Wolverine pinups in a bunch of issues. I believe it's actually uh, done the same way Excalibur was, where there weren't ads and there were pinups for every issue. Awesome. Yup. I like that format. That is an appealing format. It was also more expensive, but what can you do? Yeah, but by 1989 standards. Yeah, it was like a buck 50 instead of a buck or something. Right. So the Black Blade, that's Wolverine 1 through 3, centers around the Muramasa, the cursed sword that I mentioned in the introduction. This is a sword that was forged by the legendary swordsmith Muramasa. And in the Marvel Universe, this Muramasa, the first Muramasa sword, the Black Blade, has occult powers. It will possess anyone who tries to use it who's not like the destined user who doesn't have the will to master it. It'll also give you like super evil pants. It will also give you super evil pants. We're going to get there in a second. Now, Wolverine finds out about this because he shows up at an island where a flight has been taken down by pirates, not the fun swashbuckly kind, the kind with guns who actually kind of do the same things that the swashbuckly ones do, which is uh, rape and kill and pillage and stuff. Pirates are way less cool in real life, it turns out. That makes me sad. Yeah, I well... Well, also in the Wolverine comic where they're more like real life, I guess. Right. Pirates are not generally friendly folks. They work against the established order, but they do it real violently. Actually, sometimes they work against the established order because they're privateers, too. But anyway. Piracy is complicated. Piracy is complicated. You know what you need to figure that stuff out? Maritime law. I'm just saying. Oh, my God. It all comes together. That's why Wolverine's here. You're right. 
So anyway, Wolverine comes in and using his detailed knowledge of maritime law, stabs a bunch of pirates. And that's actually something I want to call out right here, because this is issue number one of the ongoing. Yes, it's not the first Wolverine and Madripoor story, but it is number one. You know, that's a big deal. And one of the things it establishes within the first few pages is that this is a series where Wolverine's going to kill without much compunction. So we should talk a little bit about the comics code, because this is still technically under the code. Oh, yeah. The code was around for quite a while after this. And the code had been revised a few times by now. It was significantly more flexible than it had been. But this series still just blatantly violates it all over the place. Like, I have no idea what the actual CCA was doing or bothering with, because there are very strongly worded rules about how, for example, you can never show crime as sympathetic. Huh. And I mean, that's which is basically this whole series. Right. It's very murdery and so forth, but it's fun. So Wolverine kills a bunch of the pirates, rescues a couple of the surviving passengers. He provides his statement of purpose pretty much immediately. His mission statement, as it were. I'm an X-Man. Mutants like me, band of superheroes, good people, idealists, dreamers, forever looking for the best in others. With them, killing is a last resort. With me, it's second nature. I take the world as it is and give better than I get. Come at me with a sword. I'll meet you with a sword. You want mercy? Show a little first. On one hand, that's a great statement of divergence from the main line. On the other hand, the X-Men were actually really murdery at this point, too. Not nearly as murdery as Wolverine is in this series. He kills, like, dozens, if not hundreds of people in what we're going to be covering. Yeah, but I mean, that's like saying the speed limit on that highway isn't nearly as much as the speed limit in this highway. They're still both significantly over the five miles per hour that they're being compared to. But I do like the way Wolverine describes this because it makes sense. Like, he's dealing with pirates who are kidnapping and raping and murdering here. Pirates who are just straight up awful, awful people who are cruel. They're unnecessarily evil. And so for him, it makes sense to fight fire with fire and kill them. Whereas later, for instance, we'll see him fight the Silver Samurai, who he sees as honorable and who he doesn't want to try to kill. So I kind of like that. I kind of like that as an aspect of Wolverine. Something you see a lot with Wolverine really with heroes in general, but I think with Wolverine in particular, is that, you know, he's a very, very morally great character. He does a lot of things and gets a lot of stories that involve him basically seeking out situations in which it's morally okay to do crappy things. Like, he's got a very murder grandpa sensibility in a lot of ways. But what's interesting to me is when we contrast this aspect of Wolverine with him, for instance, in the issue of Uncanny X-Men, where he almost kills Rachel Summers after she tries to kill Celine. Wildly inappropriate. It is, but I think for me that kind of makes sense. That's him trying to keep the X-Men pure, almost. Trying to say, no, you're the X-Men, you're not allowed to do this, this isn't how it works, and taking it way, way too far. Only I'm allowed to murder people arbitrarily. She's literally doing the same thing that he just justified doing in in his solo series. It's true. And honestly, I kind of have to wonder, I mean, obviously this is very meta, but whether what happened with Rachel Summers and whether the increasingly dark direction the X-Men have gone have led him to the point that he's describing here. And what you're saying basically is that Wolverine is the dude who's absolutely against regulation of firearms, but also absolutely against violence in cartoons. Maybe, maybe kind of. Wolverine is on this tiny island off the coast of Madripoor because his former fiance Mariko Yashida's secretary, was on this flight. And unfortunately, he has been mortally wounded. He is dying. But he warns Wolverine that the Muramasa sword is on its way to Madripoor with a courier, and it is going to possess whoever attempts to wield it, and it's hugely powerful, and there are bad guys trying to get it, and he has to stop them. So Wolverine, of course, heads over to Madripoor and into a 1980s romantic comedy. As it turns out, the couriers who are transporting the Muramasa are none other than our good friends Jessica Drew and Lindsay McCabe. 
Yeah, now Jessica Drew is, of course, the former Spider-Woman. The X-Men have hung out with her in San Francisco. Lindsay McCabe is her friend and business partner and is the reason I mentioned the whole romantic comedy thing, because the way she is in this arc is absolutely like a Kim Cattrall-style female romantic lead, and I love her so much. And it's even got the big trouble in Little China racism. It does. It's true. Well, and the opening where Wolverine meets the person who's being pursued by ne'er-do-wells in an airport as she comes in from this, uh, comes, well, I guess into the States in Big Trouble in Little China in from the States here, but still. Wolverine is able to rescue, I keep on just thinking of her as Kim Cattrall now, (laughs) he manages to rescue Lindsay from thugs at a couple different points, but it turns out she doesn't have the sword. It is with her partner, Jessica Drew, whom, as it turns out, it has already possessed. So we actually see Jessica pretty quickly as she shows up in, you remember those evil pants I talked about? Some super evil pants. Well, actually just an evil outfit. Everything's all strappy. Do you think she packed it just in case she got possessed? Because it's not her usual style. I mean, it's good to be prepared for these things. And she is an experienced traveler, as I understand it. But no, uh, the Black Blade, apparently, when it possesses you and turns you into like an old English Kirby as guardian slash Shakespearean speaking person, gives you really evil outfits that involve a lot of black and a lot of lacing and a lot of exposed flesh. That is true. Um, I think it's like in X-Men Apocalypse, the movie, when uh, Psylocke becomes a horseman, Apocalypse gives her that weird skimpy one piece. It's like that. So there are a number of people pursuing this sword. Logan is one of them. The goons who've been going after Lindsay and Jessica are another set. Jessica is now a wild card because she's possessed by the sword, which also gives her a bunch of powers. And another one is a villain who we've seen before. But first, a hilarious aside at the bar where we learn that Logan's super macho, hardcore drink of choice that no one else can down is, in fact, Long Island iced teas. It's canon. Right, like they build it up when he takes Lindsay to this bar to meet some contacts to figure out what's up as this thing that like is really hardcore. And I was expecting like, I don't know, whiskey made of like fire and gunpowder and orphan blood or something. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking like something that's distilled in a bathtub and can take the paint off cars. Like you take a Canadian bear and just squish it into a single shot of alcohol. And then distill that. And then distill that, yeah. A few more times. But it's a Long Island iced tea. Like I get those at the Hobnob sometimes. I mean, yeah, they're no, strong, Wolverine, sure. Wolverine drinks like a sorority girl. <laughs> I like this plan. It's like that. And then he follows it up with a Cosmo chaser. It's a Clausmopolitan. Eh? Eh? Uh Uh-uh. Are you happy with yourself? Yes. Yes, I am. I'm glad. (laughs) I feel like I would be okay with that. I mean, if there is anyone who really doesn't have anything to prove in terms of machismo at this point, it's Wolverine. Like, he can have floofy pink blender drinks. Who's going to mess with him? Uh, Well, Sabretooth, but not many other people. It's true. I can totally see a story where he goes into a bar and just like orders sex on a beach or whatever ridiculous thing, basically as a way to get someone to mess with him to start a fight. That does sound like his style. Yeah, that's totally Wolverine style. And then, you know, finish finishes the fight, sits down in the wreck of the bar with a one table and chair still standing that he's carefully preserved and finishes his fancy drink. Well, speaking of people picking fights, our buddy, the Silver Samurai shows up around this time. Okay. What's this dude's deal again? We've seen him before, but not for a really long time. So the Silver Samurai has been an X-Men and a Spider-Woman antagonist. He's been an antagonist for a lot of people. He showed up with Viper and New Mutants early in their arc. And And he's a mutant, right? Yes, he is a mutant with the power to channel energy through his katana. And he does mention in this arc that it could be through any katana, even like a, you know, department store replica katana. But still, that's very specific. Can it be through other types of swords or does it have to be a katana? Uh, He only ever mentions it with katanas, but I'm assuming so. I don't know. Could he do it with like kitchen knives? Butter knives, those little plastic knives you get like in the mall food court. Or maybe it just has to be any weapon that he's sufficiently in sync with and... That's the one he's good with. I don't know. I think it's funnier if we say he can only do it with katanas, so I'm going to go with that. So Silver Samurai is also Wolverine's ex-almost-half-brother-in-law. 
Right. He's related to Mariko Yashida and tried to take over at one point and that didn't go so well. And he's sort of like Tiger Tiger, Silver Samurai tends to be an honorable antagonist. And I realized as we were looking at this, he actually shows up a little bit earlier during the fight with Jessica. And I think Wolverine prevents him from killing her. Yes, because basically what happens is as they're fighting and Wolverine does specifically mention he's not going to pop his claws since he doesn't want to kill Silver Samurai. Any survivor he fought with his claws would know that the X-Men were still alive, or at least that he was. And he's counting on no one to recognize him, despite the fact that his only disguise is this flimsy eye patch. He still has the same ridiculous, highly recognizable hair. He is a five foot three scrappy ultra wide motherfucker with unbreakable bones and like a Canadian accent. He's the least subtle person ever. Oh, come on. You just described like half the people out there in 1989. Everyone looked like that. And like for yeah. a long time, too, he doesn't even have an eye patch. actually. He's just going by patch and then the eye patch starts showing up. Sometimes he wears what appear to be pantyhose material over his eyes. I thought that was face paint. Nah, it's hard to say. It's cross hatching. He just wears cross hatching over his eyes. Ah, cross hatching. Yes. And so, OK, so there's this big fight. You know, Wolverine's fighting Silver Samurai, who's also looking for the Black Blade. And then Jessica Drew shows up in her evil lacy bodysuit thing. It's not lacy. It's laced. It's an important distinction. Her evil laced bodysuit thing. And basically, Wolverine takes the Black Blade from her and gets possessed himself. At which point his pants turn skin tight and black. And he doesn't get less clothing because he's randomly ripped off his shirt in the middle of the fight for no apparent reason. Well, you know, otherwise, how can you fight with your nipples? You gotta leave those things free. They can each hold their own sword. I mean, I can see him taking off the jacket. But this was also before the era when people had so many chest muscles that you could reasonably sort of rationalize that. I feel like that's more of a 90s thing. Yeah, I think it kind of is. Well, we're almost at the 90s. Regardless, yeah, so... I could see it being an effective fight tactic. Like, if you're someone who's likely to get in a fight and you just wear a bunch of tearaway clothing and someone challenges you and you just rip off all your clothes and you're just taken, they're just like, okay, done. Walk away. Well, never mind. Like, it could be a really good way of diffusing a violent situation. It's strategic making it awkward. Yeah, strategic making it awkward. Perfect. Well, at this point, Wolverine's possessed by the Black Blade, and I actually really dig this because what it means is that for almost an entire issue, the guy whose name is in the title of the book isn't the protagonist. Yeah, fuck that guy, man. It's about his friends. So specifically, it's about Lindsay McCabe, who has gotten drunk on Long Island iced teas and is now wearing an extremely tight dress with a tiger printed on it. It's about Jessica Drew, who is now unpossessed, dispossessed, maybe? Let's say dispossessed. Like the Ursula Hale thing. I unpossessed, repossessed. I don't know. Yes. Well, not possessed. And it's O'Donnell, the head of the bar. Rick. Uh, our Rick. Can we and just call him Rick? We can. And the Silver Samurai. So we have this kind of like odd group of characters all working to fix things, which I love. I especially love the Silver Samurai and Lindsay McCabe hanging out. Oh my God. I would read an ongoing about just those two basically odd coupling it up and superheroing together. So Lindsay McCabe, I mean, she is, she's very, very Kim Cattrall in Big Trouble in Little China. She even looks a lot like her. And in the, she's not really a fighter specifically, but she's very good at what she does. She's a PI at this point. She's been working originally, I think, as an administrator for Jessica Drew and eventually became her investigative partner. Well, and most of her experience is in acting. She's an actress. And she's smart and she's picked up a lot. And, you know, she mentions she's talked a lot to the, you know, consulting experts in war films and stuff like that that she's been in. She's a B-grade, basically, sexploitation actress for the most part. She's got an amazing filmography that we find more about later and I want to see every single movie in it. Right. She is sassy as hell. She is super smart and she refuses to be left behind. And Silver Samurai, he sort of tries to resist for a little bit and then he's like, yeah, okay, we're good. We're bros. And so all the characters, they go to interrogate the cultists who attempted to kidnap Lindsay when she first flew into Madripoor. Oh, yeah, and those I guys. Lo- I, I love guess they were part. tied up in the basement of the bar. Lindsay pretends to have murdered one of them in order to freak out the others into telling. And she does so really well. Like, she even uses, you know, fake stage blood. From- that happens to be around at the bar? Well, no, they mentioned that O'Donnell in the Princess Bar has stage shows that apparently sometimes use fake blood. I'm not really sure what kind of shows. It's Madripoor, man. Forget it, Jake. It's Madripoor. 
is actually really convincing. Like, she's even freaking out her friends. They're like, holy crap, what is up with this lady? Why did she just, you know, murder this woman in cold blood? But it's effective, and she finds out what's up from the cultists. Which is that Wolverine's possessed by the sword. There's going to be some kind of evil ritual. He's going to sacrifice people. Jessica Drew, specifically, because he's got things, her at this point. Worse things will happen. They go to stop him. Lindsay shoots him in the face. He's okay. Still no one realizes that he's Wolverine somehow. And eventually, of course, as happens in any kind of Wolverine story where he's possessed or otherwise taken over, he uses his willpower, plus the uh, nice, gentle getting shot in the face from his friend Lindsay, to overpower the influence of the Black Blade and throw it away. Silver Samurai picks it up, and he's fine. Because the deal with the Black Blade is that you've got to have sufficient willpower, you've got to be the right person, and then you can just be sword buddies. And Silver Samurai, I mean, first of all, he's got a mutant power that's geared around mastery of a sword, but second of all, he doesn't already have an honor sword. This is now his sword. He can claim it. You know, Wolverine's got the clan Yashida honor sword, or he and Mariko keep on sending it back and forth it's joint to each custody, other, yeah. basically. His attention is split. His heart's taken. Silver Samurai's like, mine. This is the first series that I saw Silver Samurai in. Like, I hadn't read the X-Men stuff he'd been in before, and I definitely hadn't read the Spider-Woman. And so, like, my sense of him when I went back to those was completely as this extremely honorable antagonist and kind of epic counterpart to Wolverine. And I was super baffled when he first showed up in the older stuff. You know, I think it actually might have been the same for me. I think I may have read this Wolverine arc before I saw him show up in the other X-Books, since I read stuff kind of in a random order when I was a kid. And I completely agree. I love Silver Samurai, and this is why. Like, seeing him hang out with Lindsay McCabe and, like, train in his underwear and mask as she, uh, Oh, yeah, he totally does that, doesn't he? He does. But, I mean, you know, seeing them, the way they interact as these, like, previous rivals, because they were rivals in the Spider-Woman series, he almost killed Lindsay at one point, and now just work together toward a common goal to save their friend slash person who has the sword they want, it's pretty awesome. Jessica Drew, like Wolverine, lives in a lot of morally gray areas, and Silver Samurai definitely recognized Logan. He tells him when he picks up the sword, You should have remembered, Patch, that if a man already possesses a blade, especially one of honor, there is no room in his soul for another. Yeah, so clearly he has not fallen for Wolverine's I am calling myself Patch and not popping my claws disguise. I like to assume that anytime anyone who's ever met Wolverine before says Patch, they're doing air quotes. I think they are. And in fact, at one point, I think somebody actually does. Jessica Drew. Well, it's obviously a pseudonym, but yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. So that brings us to Super Dracula and Brian Blessed. Yeah, basically, because this next arc is all about the war between two rival crime lords. Tiger Tiger, who we've talked about before, and Win Gok Koi, whose pronunciation I'm sure I'm mangling, apologies. Who is Karma's uncle. And they're basically the two rival crime lords. Koi is willing to do stuff like the slave trade and the drug trade. Tiger Tiger is not, and they're both trying to kill each other. Yeah, Koi is the bad guy we're rooting against. Now, he has two henchmen who are awesome, who are the ones that you just described, Jay. Specifically, Bloodsport, who is this sort of pale, long-haired, skull-earringed, sunglasses-wearing, Shakespearean-English-talking vampire guy. I mean, he really leans into the vampire thing. He really does. And Roughhouse, who is this enormous, Brian-blessed, bearded, jolly-type dude who also says the occasional thee and thou amid replacing G's at the end of words with apostrophes. These dudes were originally supposed to be renegade Asgardians, right? They were, yeah. And I mean, in fact, at one point, Roughhouse mentions Ymir in some oath he has. Ymir, of course, being the uber-frost giant who's part of the origin of the world in Norse mythology. And they are great. They're this weird, odd couple. You get the impression that they basically are these mercenaries who are a package deal who just go around mid guard, caption, Earth, for fun, just working together kind of for kicks to see what's out there. So these guys make their first appearance by murdering, I believe, a magistrate. Yeah, this guy that works for the Prince of Madripoor. 
Now, Wolverine finds this out or Wolverine investigates this in collaboration with the chief of police, who is a bureaucrat and who is the guy who basically in perfect genre convention, because again, Madripoor is a nation built entirely on a very specific set of genre conventions, works sometimes with and sometimes at odds with Wolverine and occasionally tries to arrest him. And this is a gruff, dedicated, basically good, but probably somewhat corrupt chief of police. Like, you know the genre, you know this dude. And so Wolverine picks up a, uh, a weird scent on this corpse. Wolverine manages to trace the crime back to Koi. And he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to go find Karma because he finds out that she's traveling with him to Shan. And so he just Batmans into Karma's bedroom to question her. Batmans or Vanilla Ices? Oh, God, Vanilla Ice, like that scene in Cold as Ice where he breaks into the lady's cool room. Cold as and... Ice. Cold as Ice is a song by Foreigner. Good point. Well, it all comes together because Wolverine's a foreigner in Madripoor. So there you go. Does he tell her to ditch the zero and get with the hero? I would assume so. That's off panel. But regardless, yeah, he just wakes Karma up in the middle of the night checking in with her about what's going on, trying to find out why General Coy is involved in this whole, you know, crime war, murdery assassination thing. We should probably talk about why Karma's here. So Karma is here because her evil uncle has basically said, if you come work for me, I'll help you find your missing little brother and sister. They went missing ages ago in New Mutants. So they've been gone for a long time, and Karma sees this as her only chance to possibly ever find them again. To use her evil uncle's resources. She, at this point, has sort of bought into this as the only option, but it's pretty clear as Wolverine talks to her that she's not at all confident in her course of action. Yeah, I mean, she's not happy to be there and she's not happy to be working with him or allied with him. And, and she spends most of this arc sort of doing what she can to discreetly undercut him. So he has hired Bloodsport and Roughhouse. Man, so Bloodsport later on is going to change his name to Bloodscream. And I keep on wondering whether in the style of Bloodstorm from Mutant X, there's a universe where he just goes by Sport and then Scream where he's not a vampire. Oh, this is this. I'm Roughhouse and this is my pal, Sport. I go by Scream these days, Roughhouse. Did it right, man. <laughs> I like this plan. So Wolverine does actually follow Roughhouse and Bloodsport's trail because he runs into a dude named Archie Corrigan. He is a pilot who's working in Madripoor who has been semi-marked by Bloodsport. We see this in one scene earlier on where Bloodsport basically does this weird blood bond thing with him where he says, hey, now that I have put this weird bloody handprint on your chest, I can kill you whenever. So you have to do what I and my boss want you to do. Oh, yeah. Bloodsport is a super weird vampire. This is relevant. Bloodsport can go out during the day. He's fine with that. And he sucks people's blood out through his hands via skin to skin contact. Right. You know, I guess that's how they do it in Asgard. Side note, from what I understand of Norse mythology, a lot of the modern concept we have of a vampire comes from the way the Norse talked about dark elves. So it kind of works out to have him be both a vampire and in some versions an Asgardian. Okay. So there you have it. The more you know. And so when Wolverine meets up with this guy, Archie Corrigan, saying, hey, I need a pilot. I need to go mess up General Coy's drug operation. And also I need to go on a long aside about classic planes. That's true. Yes. And we'll get to that in a moment. Archie says, sure, I'll help you. And as they're flying, actually debates trying to kill him, eventually deciding, no, I can't kill an old buddy, even if it means my own death by this weird Asgardian vampire. I'm not going to do it. So immediately, Archie Corrigan is this awesome, sympathetic, brave character, and I love him. Yay. But let's talk about his plane, because his plane is awesome, and Wolverine talks about it for, like, two straight fucking pages. I really like the weird historical and informational asides in books like this. I totally do as well. Yeah, that's something Claremont's always done well, and it makes the world feel a lot more lived in, which I enjoy the hell out of. I also like that Wolverine specifically compares himself repeatedly to a plane called a Goonie Bird. 
It's old Goonie Bird right there. Old three-clawed Goonie Bird. Okay, that's officially our, our Wolverine nickname from now on. Yeah, I think the thing they specifically have in common is that they both have a lot of names. So really, what's one more? Exactly. Can we just call him that periodically for the rest of this? Can, I think can he just be Goonie Bird in this series? The rest of this hell, the rest of the podcast. I mean, it's as good as Patch. But anyway, Wolverine does go to mess up some paramilitary people trying to gather more information who basically look like a bunch of G.I. Joe rejects. They'll show up again. They're called Hardcase and the Harriers. Yeah, their names are uh, Hardcase, Battleaxe, and Shotgun. That tells you everything you need to know about them. They're going to turn out to be undercover S.H.I.E.L.D. agents eventually in like the very, very distant future. Or I think maybe former S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. Former undercover, former S.H.I.E.L.D., former agents. They at least have prior affiliation with S.H.I.E.L.D. and it doesn't matter at all now. So don't worry about it. They're just some dudes with some weapons that they're named after. Meanwhile, Bloodsport and Roughhouse have tried to take down Tiger. They have not succeeded, but she's severely injured. And Wolverine has sent her off along with Lindsay McCabe and Jessica Drew to a safe house where there is something that will allegedly protect her. Now, the safe house they take her to is owned by the law firm Landau, Luckman and Lake. This is an interdimensional law firm. It's named after the owners of the comic book shop Forbidden Planet. It's sort of evil and I think mostly has ties to Deadpool. Well, okay. so the thing with Landau, Luckman and Lake is that for right now, we don't know much about it. We know that they're kind of mysterious. We know that they had associations with Wolverine based on a picture on the wall from like way in the distant past. They're very very old. Yeah, all the stuff about them being an interdimensional law firm, about them trying to literally bring heaven to earth, that will all show up later. Like, the seeds that are sown in this arc grow in very strange directions. They've also got Psylocke's armor. What's going to become Psylocke's armor? Now, this part is kind of unclear. Based on when the issues come out, the armor that Landau, Luckman, and Lake offer to Lindsay McCabe, and then later that's used with Tiger Tiger, maybe that was the armor that Psylocke used before she got it. Maybe it was replacement set of armor for after hers was destroyed in Inferno. It's not her original armor. I have, n- I have absolutely no idea where this falls chronologically or how many sets of armor she had, because it's identical to the other one. It is, yeah. And it does mention that Landau, Luckman, and Lake was uh, holding it for a friend, so Psylocke's going to get it one way or the other. But it's kind of a cool little crossover. Yeah, and it's also heavily insinuated, speaking of that armor here, that it it is of some kind of non-terrestrial origin. That's true, yeah, because... It it has mystic powers of some sort that are are never really developed. That's not actually revealed till later in this arc, but yeah, so there's a lot going on with the armor that just sort of never really plays out. So Bloodsport and Roughhouse show up at the safe house, they kidnap all three women... Unfortunately, well, unfortunately for them, fortunately for everyone else, they can't get through the armor. They can't get to Tiger. They can't harm her and they can't get it off of her. They do manage to effectively subdue Lindsay McCabe and Jessica Drew, who they dress up in sexy outfits and basically vaguely enthrall. Bloodsport especially vaguely enthralls Jessica, which makes this the second arc where she's possessed in some fashion by a dark force. So they take those three to the Prince's Palace, which is where Koi is staying at the time. And Wolverine and Archie show up to hopefully, you know, stop them. There's a huge fight, Patch versus the Asgardians. And he can't really make any headway with either of them. Roughhouse is incredibly strong, incredibly physically powerful, and he just can't damage Bloodsport. Right. And they mention that, you know, they can't be damaged by anything mortal made. Even after Wolverine does pop his claws to go after Roughhouse, he doesn't really take him out for very long. But that, of course, is when Tiger Tiger shows up in the apparently otherworldly Psylocke armor to kick some ass. And not only is Tiger Tiger already a combat badass, but the armor apparently gives her whatever edge she needs to actually take out Bloodsport. So this big fight continues, at one point going into an apparently incredibly deep garden fountain, which has some kind of Lovecraftian tentacle horror underneath it. Just randomly, it's never explained. This prince just has a pet Lovecraftian horror. I'm just saying, if you got that much money, then you can buy whatever you want. 
Man, the Prince of Madripoor is his own whole thing. Because he shows up as this fight continues and basically says, what are you people doing fighting in my house? Also, I'm wearing orange and black stripes and no one can stop me because I'm the goddamn prince. Look, when there's someone named Tiger Tiger making a play for power, sometimes you gotta make statements. Basically, what's been going on is that Koi has been murdering people and kidnapping people to try to show the prince, hey, I need to be the dominant crime lord. The prince realizes, all right, if this is going to be the cost of having Koi and Tiger trying to kill each other, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have them be co-crime lords. But wait a minute. Lindsay McCabe, are you the incredible actress that I have a giant crush on and have an entire room of memorabilia dedicated to? So that happens. The prince is a huge Lindsay McCabe fan, which given that she's been in movies with titles like Cyber Witch, Lethal Latex Lovelies, and Ms. Merck, Perhaps that's a little bit questionable. No, that's amazing. I would watch the hell out of those movies. It's just this wonderfully anticlimactic end to this part of the arc. What it reminds me of so very closely, though, is the part at the end of Archer Vice when it turns out the prince of the country that they've infiltrated is a huge fan of Shirlene, Cheryl's like country music alter ego. God, that was a thing, wasn't it? It totally was, and it's very parallel to this. And so, yeah, Wait, we're making Archer references in an X-Men thing now. I feel like this is creating some kind of pop culture Ouroboros. It's true, because they reference X-Men all the time. Yeah. But this is what gives us our current status quo, which is General Koi and Tiger Tiger as these kind of competing but not warring crime lords. The prince aware of what's going on, and Wolverine, Jessica Drew, and Lindsay McCabe kind of reluctantly allowed to operate on their own. Which brings us to my favorite arc of early Wolverine ongoing, the Mr. Fixit arc. Mr. Fixit. Should we talk about who Mr. Fixit is? Mr. Fixit is the Hulk, but he only turns into the Hulk at night. He's Bruce Banner, or they're trying to make Robert Bruce Banner stick during this era, which they completely fail to, during the day, but he hates being Bruce. Robert. Sorry, I'm just going to call him Bruce because- Robert the Bruce? Fuck that nonsense. No. Oh. No, not even the New Mutants version of Robert the Bruce. Unfortunate. No, so he hates being Bruce Banner, so he basically drugs himself at sunrise. So Bruce Banner is just unconscious all day. Mr. Fixit gets up at night and goes around basically punching people for money and being kind of a smartass and big and gray and having really nicely tailored suits. Now, the Gray Hulk, Mr. Fixit, this is as distinct from the Green Hulk, which was called the Savage Hulk in this era, which was kind of a different facet of Bruce Banner's personality. This is something Peter David pretty heavily explored in this era, and it's kind of cool stuff. But the short version is that Mr. Fixit is essentially a selfish, manipulative, sometimes cruel version, sort of those dark sides of Bruce Banner's personality. He's got his own code, though. He doesn't like working for the mob, and that is going to be plot relevant. So Mr. Fixit is in Madripoor because the guy he works for has a buddy in the mob in the States who's buddies with Koi, and Mr. Fixit is on loan of loan of loan because he's a friend of a friend of a friend. And he's basically there to kick some ass and take some names. Unfortunately for Mr. Fixit, he very quickly comes into contact with Patch and does not recognize him as the Hulk's longtime rival Wolverine. Wolverine, on the other hand, totally recognizes this dude and spends two issues just fucking with him nonstop. He steals his luggage and replaces everything in it with purple pants. He sets things up so that Fixit is stuck as Banner, doing cool stuff that Fixit would have wanted to do, basically like getting hella laid. He throws him into a bunch of fights and basically starts fights around Fixit to get Fixit to like bust up crime rings for him. Basically, what's going on here is that Logan, while he's totally fucking with Mr. Fixit, is also exposing him to situations that make him realize that General Akoi, his boss's ally's ally, and the reason he's in Madripoor, is doing terrible, terrible things. At one point, he just uses his claws to knock out a support of a walkway Fixit is standing on, at which point he falls into a drug ring run by General Akoi's people and starts busting it up, that sort of thing. You know, if you're going to read two issues of the Wolverine ongoing that stand alone pretty well, that are just a fun, ridiculous, 
ridiculous adventure, but also give you a pretty good idea of the tone of the series at its most lighthearted, but still fairly violent during this era, I would highly recommend seven and eight. It is fun stuff, but it also does tie nicely into the previous plot. I mean, while we do still have it does it is based on the status quo we've seen before. Obviously, there are still big conflicts between General Koi and Tiger Tiger, and Wolverine is supporting Tiger Tiger, using in this case a big gray mean dude. Who, when he finds out that he has been manipulated into working via a mob boss, basically has the rocketeer, you know, I may not make an honest buck, but I don't work for no two-bit Nazi moment. So there you go. Now, these first eight issues are basically Claremont's Madripoor arc. But Claremont does have one more story, which is probably my favorite of the entire arc. First, there's a one-shot by Peter David where Logan kills a bunch of people because he promised a nun he would. Yeah, and we're not going to go into that. That's one of the issues we're going to skip. It's a cool story, but it's just not really relevant, so we're going to pass on it. Nun murder. Yes. Nun more goth. Nun more goth? Nun more violent. Oh, jeez. You could do so many nun puns. Oh, now I'm kind of regretting that we didn't cover that issue. Yeah, well, It would just be that, though. But yeah, Wolverine number 10 is the first comic where we start to understand the relationship between Wolverine and Sabretooth. Right. This story is called 24 Hours, and it is a callback, sort of, to a backup story in classic X-Men number 10 called Tag Sucker, where Sabretooth stalks Wolverine on his birthday, kills a nearby woman, and nearly kills Wolverine. Although I think this uh, story in Wolverine number 10 may be the first time we explicitly find out that it's Wolverine's birthday where this happens every year. It's like Arcade and Miss Locke, but less lighthearted and consensual and with fewer entertaining robots. Yeah, basically this is something where by the beginning of the story, Wolverine knows this pattern. Every year, Sabretooth will beat him to within an inch of his life just to show him that he can. So Wolverine makes a point of only spending his birthday around people he hates. Well, or at least not near people he likes. So he starts off this issue in a dive bar, narrating because he narrates throughout this entire series. But tonight, I'm steering clearer people I know, places I care for, only hide I want to put at risk is my own. I really like to imagine that he's doing this out loud. And everyone just sort of looks at him uncomfortably. Yeah. Very possibly. Also, everyone knows he's Wolverine because half of what he talks about is how no one knows he's Wolverine. <laughs> it's the Speed Racer. Nobody knows that I'm secretly Racer X. Nobody knows that he's secretly Racer X. He thinks we don't know that he's secretly Rex Racer, etc. Exactly. At length. So a lot of this issue is structured around flashbacks to when Logan was a much, much younger man. Now, in the story, this is before he gets his adamantium skeleton and before he gets his claws. We, of course, know that it'll be retcon that he's always had his claws, that they're made of bone. That was before this retcon, and given that it'll later turn out that many of Wolverine's memories are false, eh, it all kind of works out. Are his claws made of retcons? Is that what's going on? I mean, pretty much. Was his skeleton uh, a retcon skeleton before it was an adamantium skeleton? He was kidnapped by Proto-Weapon Plus. Retcons were bonded to a skeleton. Seems reasonable. Sorry, I will stop being flippant. This is a fucked up story. It totally is. And in fact, the way these flashbacks begin are with Wolverine holding a woman in his arms who's clearly dead and bursting into a bar. This is Silver Fox. This is one of Logan's many one true loves. This is specifically a woman he lived with in Canada for a long time whom Sabretooth murdered. And he actually finds Sabretooth in the bar who looks basically smug. And when Wolverine asks what happens, just says, Happens, boy. Especially to squaws, I'll be enough to say no. And then says that Logan can totally fight him, but he will kill him. He will kill him just like he killed the woman he loves. We see flashbacks to this fight on and off throughout the issue. This is the issue that Sinkevich does some of the art on. And he's very toned down from his usual style, but it works very well here. And what you see in this is something that we haven't seen from Sabretooth in a very, very long time, which is that Wolverine is absolutely and unquestionably outmatched. Wolverine cannot hold his own against Sabretooth in a fight. Even with an adamantium skeleton, he can't, honestly, but that's irrelevant to this issue. But yes, Sabretooth just destroys him. And at this point in flashback history, Logan doesn't know why 
Saber and me, we'd been spoiling for a fight. He'd always helped himself to whatever was mine, challenging me to stop him. Something always held me back. Knew he hated me, hadn't a clue why. Maybe it was simply what he said, that the whole world wasn't big enough for the pair of us. At this point, I believe Claremont was still intending for Sabretooth to turn out to have been Wolverine's father, right? Yeah, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But, I mean, think about this. Like, this is how we are introduced to Sabretooth at the first point we've seen him chronologically, as somebody who murdered Logan's partner just because he could, just to hurt Logan, just for kicks. That works for me. That's a terrifying, unstoppable Sabretooth that's so much better than the chump that got taken out by the Power Pack in the Mutant Massacre. Yeah, Sabretooth works so much better as a force of nature, as Logan's boogeyman, the guy who he has to prepare for because he cannot stop him. And in fact, we see their first big fight as Sabretooth just kicks the crap out of Logan. He's stronger, he's faster, and even when Logan does fly into a berserker rage sans adamantium, that's not enough to even do anything. Sabretooth is about to kill him until Logan throws them both off a cliff, and Sabretooth leaves him for dead. In the present, Sabretooth exists primarily as a specter in this story. Logan gets into a bar fight, manages to stop it. He stops a mugging, takes the guy who's almost killed in it off to get treatment at the brothel where Lindsay and Jessica are currently basing their PI business. After this, the guys from the bar come after him in a jeep with a rocket launcher and flamethrower because Madripoor. This is what happens in Madripoor. I'd also like to point out that they are brothers named Daryl, which from what I understand is supposed to be a reference to the show Newhart where there were two brothers named Daryl, I guess. I think they showed up on Coach later on too. Go figure. I will take your word for that. Logan is helped by Spider-Woman in Getting Away by Jessica Drew and eventually finds these two guys who came after him in the princess bar murdered and strung up with a note. Murdered and strung up with big fancy bows and a note which reads, Nobody kills you but me, especially today. And so I like this because Wolverine doesn't beat Sabretooth. In the present day, he doesn't even confront Sabretooth. And so we see him, like, it's almost like the Reavers and Firefly. They're scarier before they show up. They're scarier when they're just something that might happen, that you've heard about what it's like when they show up. Yeah, Sabretooth, man, I get the point of making him a sympathetic character. But again, I think this is one of those things that Claremont was talking about, you know, when he was talking about why not to do an ongoing, because the more you pulled Sabretooth into the light, the less scary he gets. And in fact, Claremont did state at one point that the Sabretooth we saw most of the time, like an Iron Fist and X-Men in Power Pack and all of that, was just the cloned version that Mr. Sinister had as a member of his Marauders, that the original Sabretooth would eventually show up and be much, much more terrifying than the Sabretooth we'd seen continually getting defeated, which I think is a great concept and I wish they'd gone in that direction. Yeah, I like Sabretooth so much more, and I like him as a villain and a threat so much more when he is the guy who Wolverine has never beaten and can't beat on his own. Now, you mentioned earlier that Wolverine was originally intended by Claremont to be the son of Sabretooth, and I actually do like that relationship a lot. That got retconned away in the Wolverine origin series. Or did it, because how much of that is really real, even? Uh, anyway, yeah, there I, is that. Yeah, Wolverine, man. But, you know, at this point, it's safe to say that Sabretooth is a character who has deviated really far from the original Chris Claremont intentions, and I think in this case, the character suffered for that, because Claremont's ideas were pretty cool. So that wraps up the first 10 issues of the Wolverine ongoing. Or at least the nine that Chris Claremont wrote. And so, like we said, we're going to be covering some of the Wolverine ongoing series, possibly a whole bunch of issues at once, possibly sometimes we'll focus a little bit more. We're going to play it by ear. So. Yeah, we're going to be doing that on and off, and it largely stands alone. It doesn't intersect a whole lot with other X titles that are going on. It basically runs parallel to them. So instead of actually like having it be in the rotation between X-Men, X-Factor, New Mutants, Excalibur, we're probably just going to do sort of big clumps of it periodically when we feel like it. Meanwhile, you've got questions. Distressed Pig asks on Tumblr. 
I was wondering if you had any specific online resources that you use for tracking down old back issues, particularly ones from the 80s and early 90s. So if you just want to read the issues, you could do a lot worse than Marvel Unlimited, the online subscription-based service, which is one of the things that we use. They don't have a complete collection. For instance, they have like all of Uncanny X-Men and not a lot of adjectiveless X-Men that was running simultaneously. Yeah, and I would say easily like 95 to 98 percent of what we cover on the podcast, we're reading primarily through Marvel Unlimited at this point. That'll be less the case once we get to the 90s. We complain. Well, maybe they'll have filled out their collection more by then, but they seem to be running parallel to us to a pretty great extent. So we complained a lot about Marvel Unlimited early on in the podcast, and their interface has gotten a lot better since then. So yeah, we like it. Uh, Their collection has been gradually filling out. It's a really useful service. It's not comprehensive, but it's great. And it's especially great if you do what we do and you need to clip images so you can use them to illustrate points. Now, if you're looking for physical issues, if you're looking at it from more of a collector's perspective, your local comic shop would be happy to help you. Most local comic shops have lots of short boxes and long boxes full of back issues and a lot of people sold stuff from the 80s and 90s. Well, and connections to larger networks of dealers and more contacts. So they may be able to keep an eye out for something for you. Similarly, conventions, great place to buy back issues there. So my favorite thing to do on Sundays of conventions is basically to go through all of the old back issue bins. It's great. It's also a great way to like get away from the super crush at shows. Now, if you don't want to deal with shopping, which is generally how it is for me, I can't stand shopping. You can just go to... Oh, but the thrill of the hunt, man. No, no, no thrill of the hunt for me. Instead, there's the thrill of a website called Mile High Comics, which I would highly recommend. When I've done back issue hunting, that's where I found a lot of them. When we were filling out the last bits of our Excalibur and New Mutants collection, a lot of those came from Mile High. I mean, they have a bunch of copies of pretty much everything you can think of. Depending on the condition you're looking for, you can get it for cheaper or pay more for uh, a nicer version. So lots of options there. There are also some libraries and archives that have bound collections of back issues or have archival collections. Again, you're going to want to look around locally. Most of those don't get loaned out if they're archival. But also, depending on whether you're looking to read them or own them, I mean, at this point, we also will put out calls to friends um, and basically say, does anyone have this who can lend it to us? Since we have a large network of hardcore X-Men fans, works pretty well for us. But we're also usually just looking to read and reference, not specifically own copies. All right. So an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, why are there so many blue mutants? That is an excellent question. And the answer is roughly the same reason there are a lot of sexy green girls on Star Trek. It is a color that isn't mistakable for most human skin tones and that works with the color processing that was used in early comics. There's another reason for that, too, that actually has to do with how comics are colored, which is that blue is used a lot as a highlight color on black or gray. And a lot of the time you see characters, and this happened with Beast, for instance, who are originally meant to be black colored or dark gray, where the blue highlight is used and then another colorist comes in and assumes that that's the primary color and the black is lowlights. I wonder if that happened with Batman, because he got he went from wearing mostly black to wearing a lot of blue, right? I would guess that that was part of it. That's something I mean, I've, I've actually emailed colorists to ask whether costumes are supposed to be black or blue before just because of that highlight coloring. That's something that you actually still see pretty regularly. So we are an entirely listener supported podcast. That comes courtesy of our awesome Patreon subscribers. Those are the folks who make this show possible, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from fictional characters. I believe that today I am turning things over to the evil Brian Blessed of Madripoor and possibly also Asgard, Roughhouse. <laughs> Working with my friend Bloodsport, or is it Bloodscream, on Midgard is the best decision I've made in a troll's age. The fine food, the lovely ladies, the glorious brawls. And most of all, the company of my good friends, Cat Dobbs and Chris Fennessy. By Amir's icy breath, even that runt patch can't ruin this day. 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. This show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Wolverine levels up his hair, grabs his emergency backup Summer's brother, and heads to Mexico. For Havoc and Wolverine, meltdown. Mm-hmm.